when you do maximum tolerant dose, you do everything you can to wipe out every one of those cells. Yeah. That's then what makes the more aggressive moths that we just talked about. Right. But what happens is if you just come in and you put a little bit into this into the equation, you might pull back, let's say, 50% of those cancer cells. You like kind of build a little bit of a runway. And then you back off and you let the body do its thing. And you only intervene with another little sort of sprinkling of the poison just when it gets to a certain volume, certain level. And then you do the same thing and it buys you more time and you then start to switch this into a battle zone, into a uh, maintained zone. Like here's now something that people can live long, healthy lives with cancer and not die of it. And here coming all the way back, when you over harvest those daughter cells, when you over treat, over kill with maximum tolerated dose, you inherently wake up what they call the mother cells, which are the stem cells. And she's pissed. As I say, if, if, <laughs> if you yeah. piss off mama, guess what? Everybody's going to suffer. And this is what happens. Welcome to the Practicing with Dr. Nathan Goodyear podcast. I'm the medical director at Brio Medical in Scottsdale, Arizona. I am both a conventionally trained and licensed medical doctor as well as a licensed medical homeopathic doctor. This podcast is your resource for a scientific-based discussion of all things cancer and beyond from a natural, holistic, and integrative perspective. It's time to teach the body how to heal. So here we go. We're going to take a deep dive into cancer as a metabolic disease. We are here again with, I would say, the great Dr. Nasha Winters. <laughs> now, that, that is because you're doing great things, right? Greatness doesn't come from a title. It doesn't come from a name. It comes from things that people do. And you know, we talked about it. You need to check out the other podcasts because we have been the guests of most gracious hosts, Nasha Winters and her husband, Stephen. And he is a fabulous chef. And um, we talk through your history, and I've, I've mentioned this in those two podcasts, your history and then your book, how you haven't just experienced things, you've learned things, but then you've acted upon them. And when you look throughout history, Nasha, history defines great people by doing great things. It's, it's action. And, and that's why I can say you're the great nation winners because you've done great things out of your experience, which check out that podcast because it's going to tug on your heartstrings and with the book. But then now what you're doing with the organization, and we'll touch on that at the very end, because now you're changing the trajectory, the course of oncology. And that's not, that's no easy task. <laughs> That's no easy task because need, needless to say, there's um, inerrant calcentrist. Uh, people are in, they're, they're immobile. I'm trying to come up with a word there and I can't do that, but they're immobile. They're, they're fixed. They're not going to change. Mm -hmm. And you're forcing change, but you're, you're doing the right way. You're asking questions. You're building bridges. And I think that's very important. We've mm -hmm. talked, we talked about that over dinner multiple nights, how you recognize opportunities and you build bridges yeah. and you don't know where that bridge will go, 
but it's a bridge yeah. that you can come back to maybe days later or years later or decades later. So I wanted to talk on this concept of, of cancer as a metabolic disease, but I wanna start with the concept of the way cancer is perceived today is unfortunately, I think still the same way we think about so many things related to cancer and it goes all the way back to the 19th century. Yeah. You know, Paul Urick, an immunobiologist, uh, he came up with the concept of one chemical for one disease. The, actually, chemotherapy. Chemotherapy had no context with cancer. It was using one chemical mm -hmm. for one disease. Right, right. He actually used salvaricin, which is a, a, it's a drug, and he was using it for the treatment of neurosyphilis. So it's salvaricin. And he used that to treat that. So that's where the idea came, one chemical, one disease. Now, he then coined the term silver bullet. That became the magic bullet theory. And I, I see that concept permeate medicine, but particularly oncology today. Yeah. So cancer is a genetic disease, right? <laughs> I'm being sarcastic. I'm being sarcastic because that falls into the one hit right. hypothesis. Yeah. yeah. Really cancer is a heterogeneous disease. Exactly. And I think that ties in beautifully with the concept that is metabolism as the flies join us today. Because <laughs> uh, we'll talk about the tumor microbiome <laughs> and the gut microbiome. So the flies are already collecting. <laughs> but t tell me, because cancer is a metabolic disease, that was the context of your book. Yeah. Elaborate on that a little bit, how that separates from the one hit hypothesis, the magic bullet theory, the silver bullet theory and that, how that still combats with the current conventional wisdom today. Yeah, yeah. so a couple things you said, just like my, my wheels are turning here, but one of the things I thought was so interesting is you bring up this concept of heterogeneity, so, mm -hmm. which just means a whole lot of stuff happening. Oh yeah. You know, and a lot of different stuff happening, right? right? And maybe even completely opposite stuff happening in the same environment. Like this turns it on, this turns it off in the same space. So it's tough when people are like, well, if you just are looking for the one-to-one, you're going to miss the one to many right. possibility. So there's that you alluded to, Hey, is, isn't cancer just a genetic disease, which is what we are still approaching it as for, you know, this experiment of 110 years or so. Um, and we have, unfortunately, it hasn't been as successful as we'd hope not to say genes don't play a role, but they're not the starting point. They're a downstream expression. So the upstream is what's happening in the terrain, the mitochondria, the metabolic expression of our cells. So in this really interesting level, and we talked, kind of touched on some of those concepts too, but here's what I think is so interesting. We still have a, we still have a dominant medical model that's doing the one-to-one, -one, one treatment, one, you know, one target, one drug, and yet even the American Cancer Society says that cancer is a collection of hundreds of diseases. Hmm. So how can you both say it's a bunch of things and then just say, and there's one way or a very small handful of ways to approach it? Right. That's really confusing to me. So there's number one. The other thing, I'm sure you've talked about this or covered this with people you've interviewed, but I'm so compelled by the idea of the cell nuclear transfer studies. Mm. And so have you guys covered that much? I can not go really. super no, simple. Not really, no, we have not. Because this is what, what really sets the, the foundation for yeah. the metabolic. So 
that connects the terrain with the genetic material totally. and it, yeah, yeah. yeah 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 and so if cancer was truly a genetic disease you would take the hard drive which is the nuclei out of the cell and you would you would take that out of that cell and replace it so let's say we have a healthy cell with a healthy nuclei then you remove that nuclei and you replace the nuclei of a cancer cell if this was a genetic disease that cell should now express in a normal healthy way the opposite is true that if you took a cancer cells nuclei hard drive out and you replace the hard drive in a healthy cell if this was a genetic disease you should make that uh, that turn into a cancer cell this has been repeated many many times and yet never does it change the expression of creation of or diminishing of cancer so let me let me present this context because this is a very important study and i want to tie in something i mentioned to you earlier over coffee um have a guest here won't leave me <laughs> alone like you today um is that if you have the environment of a cell so the whole so you got the border of the cell you've got all the contents the cytoplasm everything in there and right inside within this whole context is the nucleus where the genetic material is okay and what she's saying is if you take the nucleus out of the cancer cell and put it into the environment, the cell of a healthy cell, it does not change that. In fact, it's the healthy environment that changes the genetic yes. material. Yeah. It's like the swimming pool is what matters more than what's floating in it. Exactly. Yeah, no, that's a scary thought. <laughs> having four kids oh uh, anyway say honey have the kids been in the pool yeah. because there's something floating by something not good <laughs> that's right yeah. so because that brings me yes. to a very beautiful point let me find that um i mentioned it to you this morning so many cancers are driven by obesity mm. i know there are people that advocate i actually saw a doctor on social media saying that as a physician, if you are telling patients that they need to lose weight to be healthy, you are um, hurting them. Yeah, you're shaming now, them. Now, yeah. I, I think you could, there's ways that you could do that that are, that are not helpful and constructive. But th this, this physician was saying that obesity is healthy. Mm. Now we know that pancreatic cancer, colorectal cancer, many of these cancers uh, are at a, they're obesity-driven cancer. So we know that, that's, that's not really a question for debate. Uh, here it is, right here. So talking about this environment, beautiful point, Nisha, but this was a 2023 article from, um, from uh, Nature Metabolism, but it's entitled, Adipocytes Reprogram Cancer Cell Metabolism by Diverting Glucose Towards Glycerol-3-Phosphate, Thereby Promoting Metastasis. Mm -hmm it ties in exactly what you're saying. Here, it's the fat cells that are not contributing to the carcinogenic process, but they're altering the metabolism yeah. that leads to the metastatic spread of the cancer. Yeah. Fascinating, right? Yeah, so that right there, this is the metabolomic proof of what you're talking about. Right. Right. Now that research, that's not new research, right? Oh, this is what's so amazing is the first time this was sort of like, oh, that's interesting, was when this, this very somewhat controversial uh, uh, clinician, you know, doctor and researcher from the 1920s 
was showing that the mitochondria, which are also organelles inside the cell, um, were, looked different in between cancer cells and non-cancer cells. Mm -hmm. They kind of looked like little raisins compared to plump, you know, you know, plump grapes. And they were, he was just noticing that and wondering, like he, he sort of had some ideas. He had some questions, he had some assumptions and those, when he started to approach it, he got some surprising results, which was at that time. Now this is before any of the conversations around ketogenic diet or anything. We didn't know that, like there was nothing. He was, he's not the person who made ketosis, you know, part of the, part of the discussion. He's the person who create who showed us the underlying issue that led to many years later, hey, this is maybe what ketosis impacts is what we were seeing with this Dr. Otto Warburg yeah. back at that time. And so he was noticing different amounts, like the, the, the physical anatomical structure of the mitochondria being different, but then also the energy output being different and the uh, what that inner, what that sick little raisin mitochondria was doing was sucking up more resources differently than the healthy mitochondria. Right. And so that is what has sort of set this pace of people scratching their head and asking questions or even because he was controversial, unfortunately, at a time, um, I really recommend people read the book Raven um, Ravenous, which is um, Apple. Uh, I can't remember his first name, but uh, Apple is the author's last name. And um, that is something that oh, Sam Apple was the, the name of the book Ravenous. He talked about the controversy of it, which shut down this research in wow. one way. So it was like, okay, because he was a German, I mean, excuse me, he was Jewish in Germany at the time of World War II. He was also gay. And so he was like a whole pile of paradoxes and controversies, but he, the, the, his, his call, his religious colleagues, his Jewish friends were felt betrayed when he stayed back and basically worked for Hitler yeah. as a researcher, because the other thing about the Nazis is they were very interested in cancer research. And so very much they was, Hitler had a very paranoia around now, cancer. I know he was paranoid. Yeah, extremely, but cancer was the thing he was most afraid of. No, I did not know this. So this book is fascinating. So he basically, because Otto Warburg was very much like, I'm going to find the cure to cancer. So he didn't care what what was going on around him. He right. was not like, he didn't give one rats about the politics, the, 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 all the things, right? So, but he upset a lot of people. So he was already controversial from that. Then, even though he was brilliant and everyone recognized him, he won Nobel Prizes in the 1930s for his work, we were really moving forward in his understanding and we would have probably gotten there much faster if he wasn't so controversial. But also, good old Watson and Crick came along in the yeah, 50s, yeah, yeah. found the DNA helix. Everything became a genetic. And everything, like, took on Bovary's work from 1914 and said, okay, forget about the metabolomics, which we weren't calling then, forget about the terrain, forget about the mitochondria, forget about this metabolic process, and let's go back to the gene. Yeah. And then we put all of our energy there. And then it, it, then we decided to do the mapping of the genome, thinking that would be our answer for the one target, one treatment. That failed us miserably. And on and on. And we just keep going back, trying to make the gene theory fit. Yeah. And it just simply doesn't. We, we are continually mm -hmm. trying to put the square peg in a round hole. But we, we're repackaging it. We're renaming it. Yeah. And, and here is... so. 
rebranding it. <laughs> it's like, yeah. it, come on guys, the, it doesn't work. Yeah. And you really are starting to see maybe a pivot in that because yeah. now the way cancer has been framed, obviously it's a genetic disease process. And I think you're exactly right, uh, Watson and Crick. I actually wrote uh, one of my papers, I have a minor in uh, critical writing, oh, but yeah. it was on, on their discovery. Beautiful story, beautiful story. But um, although a woman is actually who discovered it and they took all the credit. Well, just that's just saying that's true. That's true. <laughs> um, but it was it was from their um, I think it was from their autobiography. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. that's what I was writing Very from. Cool, yeah. So and they weren't going to mention that. Yeah. So, <laughs> no, nope. but you're correct is now we we not a genetic disease, but cancer is always seen as this kind of solid tumor of mm. cells that's isolated from the body. Right. Uh -huh. But now we're we're starting to view it differently and go, wow, there are cells that are definitely more tumor in nature, but they're interacting with healthy cells. Yeah. There is this tumor micro environment. Yeah. So I look at this context of a positive nature because it's starting to help us to see and hopefully break from this model of thinking. And it fits into this heterogene heterogeneous yeah. me meta mm -hmm. metabolomic process, terrain, environment, than just a solid ball of cells isolated. Right. And so right. I think this is a breaking point. What do you think? I think so. And I think that, you know, people like Nina Bissell and her work in extracellular matrix in the 80s and beyond. I think, you know, basically Seafried's work at Boston College coming through in the, you know, like the 2000s and into the early like 2011 before his book Cancer as a Metabolic Disease came out. Excuse me. They're res they're dusting off and resurrecting concepts from the early 1900s that were buried because of controversial individuals, a change in sort of the, 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 the direction, the advent of the pharmaceutical industry, all these things post-World War II where we like, oh, we've got all this leftover um, ammo, which looks uh, a good idea. Let's turn it into our agriculture and our pharmaceutical world. And that's where we've put all of our eggs in that basket and things really haven't been we the same We just reimagined war. We did. We did. And so it's funny, all of our, our food industry and our health industry are now literally, no wonder we call it the war on cancer, the battle on cancer, because they grew out of that. Yeah. yeah and yeah. so it's very interesting that the energetics, I mean, that sounds a little esoteric, but it's like, wow, it birthed from this a, a, a war time. Yeah. And so it's, it's easy to keep that going. But folks like these guys have dusted off these concepts and said, what was Dr. Otto Warburg looking at? What was he understanding? So they're not saying he was right, but he handed off a baton that said, look further, keep digging. And of course, you and I were talking about that this morning as yeah. well. All of us have to be willing to do that of like, okay, we don't know what we don't know until we know, and then we pivot, yeah. but we build upon. You don't throw yeah. the baby out with the bathwater when you learn something new. You're like, well, what about that do we put keep in the basket while we keep pushing it down the, the aisle? And then what is added to that? It's, you know, this just popped in my head. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a continual ability, or I think intentionality, to try and think bigger, to yeah. try and question everything that you do but it's a daily commitment. Yeah. There was an article, and I've talked about this in other pods before, is that there was an article, they were talking about um, how couples that have been together a long time develop kind of a left brain, right brain. Uh -huh. So they become like one brain, they compensate for each other's deficiencies. But what the author didn't recognize is that they ended up 
focusing on um, that daily commitment because mm -hmm. they interviewed a couple, a couple couples, but one of them in particular that had been married for 65 years. Mm -hmm. And they asked him, how did you achieve this? And they interviewed them separately and then brought them back together mm -hmm. and interviewed them. And they didn't tell him what each other interviewed. Oh, I love it. And, and what, what they essentially said in their own ways, and then when they brought them back together, they were like, yeah, that's right, oh. is that every day was a commitment to that purpose. Mm. And so with what you do, with what I do, because it's very easy for medicine and physicians because yeah, we do struggle with ego <laughs> and, and pride. Yeah, there is no, this thing called God's right. complex <laughs> where we, we start to go, well, this is what defines me. This is what I do. This is what I think. And we will start to stagnate, yeah. create stagnation within innovation, within thinking. And so it was a daily commitment. So I think we have to have a daily commitment to understanding that tomorrow we may know something different about what we think we know today. Yeah. Yeah. And then and in 65 okay years, that. and that's okay. That's yeah. science. Yeah. yeah. That's science. It's not saying my, you know, I was wrong yesterday. Right. We didn't have, the, we didn't have the information today exactly. we had yesterday. Exactly. That's okay. Yeah. yeah. And so it's funny because even in the Otto Warburg argument today, people all like when I hear people say, well, it's not a metabolic, you know, they go back and say, see, Otto Warburg wasn't right. There was something, there was some, you know, fatal flaws in his thinking. I'm like, no one's saying that what he was saying back in 1920 is what it is. People are saying what he revealed in 1920 is what brought us more curiosity, yeah. more research, and the things we're learning, such as the par the, uh, the paradox of Warburg, right, you know, the right. and, and some of these other things that have led us understanding that it's not just glucose. That oh wait a minute, it could be things like arginine, methionine, it could be things like glutamine. That when you when that cancer gets creative when it gets adaptable right when it gets more adaptable and the healthy cells get less adaptable it's going to be resourceful it's going to be like my dogs that are little rescues from the reservations of gallup new mexico and these guys are so resourceful they get the bet they eat better than probably 90 percent of humans on this planet and yet they will still find the weirdest things to eat and <laughs> take in and it hurts them yeah like they get sick and then they hurt us because we have to clean up after it and all the things. And so this is like cancer, right? It's yeah. like you have all the resources you need, but you are still going after everything. One of my colleagues I love, um, Tina Kazor, she's a naturopathic fabno. She's a fellowship of the American Board of Naturopathic Oncology. I heard her speak once and she talked about cancer is a sociopath. Hmm. And I was so intrigued by that because she said it, it will keep resourcing, taking all of it until it inevitably kills itself. Yeah. And so sociopaths ha do not have the ability to have compassion and are basically separate from their tribe, from their community. And so when she sat there explained that, I was like, well, that's interesting. That's a good way to describe them. But isn't there sort of a, I don't know, not cure, but a way to have, it's like, how do you bring them back into the fold? How do you reestablish connection and communication? How do you help it understand that it has the tools and resources it needs and it doesn't have to go beyond its boundaries. So it's, a, I think, a good tie here. Let me, let me give this quote, and I mentioned it to Steve yesterday. It's, uh, Gang Yu is the author of the mm -hmm. quote. Complexity is the prodigy of the world. Simplicity is the sensation of the universe. 
Behind complexity, there is always simplicity to be revealed. Inside simplicity, there is always complexity to be discovered. So I I think it's, it's really showing that what we, what we have to be very careful about today is trying to simplify something that is insanely complex. And in doing that, we misrepresent or oversimplify the facts. So when you look at conventional medicine, we talked about the one hit hypothesis, the magic bullet theory, the silver bullet. I see a lot of the natural holistic and integrative medicine falling prey to that, that, that issue. But instead of a drug, instead of it being gene, we'll do something that's more quote unquote alternative, natural, but we're falling prey to the same paradigm of thought. 100%. It's still an anti-something or a simplistic concept here. And we, and you're correct. It's, 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 um, there are breakdowns on both sides of the equation from pure standard of care and pure alternative care. Absolutely. And that if you are someone, so I'll hear, I'll see this on a social media post or something. And someone's like, well, I did IVC and it didn't work or I ate the ketogenic diet and I still got cancer or it still progressed or I was whatever. I'm like, well, the fact that you are looking, you are still looking at a single target with yeah. a single treatment and expecting a different outcome. That philosophy is, is so inherently flawed yeah. because when you now understand this is hundreds of diseases, this is adapting and changing and resourcing dependent on the information coming in. So if you put in only oxidative therapies, which is standard of care, right? but also an alternative, a lot of alternatives the same way. Also you push that, you're going to push that so hard. It will find a workaround. Yeah. Okay. Or you'll just push them all the way off the cliff because it's so devastating to the system. Just like if someone says, well, I'm just going to, I've got diagnosed. I'm not going to do any standard care. I'm just going to juice my way out of this. Right. That is like just as nuts as the other way. And I'm like, oh my goodness, you guys, you have to look at what you have in this moment what are the key drivers in this moment how do we apply the right amount of pressure the right dose combination duration how do we follow what metrics do we follow to see if we're moving the dial at all and then how do we re you know like like pivot or adjust if things aren't moving in the way we want because cancer is trying to survive. So cancer is a survival mechanism. It's a evolutionary survival mechanism, right? And it's trying to, it's trying to live and thinking it's helping you try to live. What I said, and tell me if you think this is accurate or add your, your piece to it is that when I'm trying to explain to people what cancer, why why did it develop? It's like, Mm -hmm. you have to understand that cells want to survive. And of course, we want them to survive if they're healthy cells to us. And if we if create an environment, they they adapt to survive. In the short term, that is a wonderful thing. But if the inadaptable, unhealthy environment continues, that beneficial adaptation in the short term and the long term becomes something we call cancer. Exactly. Because it's something that's good becomes bad, broken. And yeah. a really broken way, which will perpetuate more signaling to make for more broken cells, which will perpetuate more signaling to make for more broken cells. It's an amplification of a dis, 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 disorganization, discordance, lack of coherence, you know, all these things that lead to, it might start in one place, but if you are nourishing and nurturing around that, it stays put. Yeah. 
But if you are still contributing information, whether that's food, diet, lifestyle, loss of circadian rhythm, certain pharmaceuticals, certain toxic exposures, certain toxic relationships that keep coming in, it is creating vulnerability in the swimming pool of which that cell is swimming in that then allows that to bring friends, <laughs> expand, leave that swimming pool and go to another one and move about the building in a way that this is where I don't understand that we think we can poison ourselves back to health. The pathway to healing is through destruction. Does that make any sense I, in nature? No. I'm, well, maybe in an old Hindu philosophy of Kali, oh. which is the idea of this, of this, I, of this, this like d d uh, total breakdown of everything, but it's people misunderstand it. It's about compost. It's about the soil. Mm. It's like, what do you compost out of the, the dead, out of the death, out of the broken to become compost to bring something to life? But there's a point of no return, right? There is. So, and, and when you look at, you know, full-dose chemo, we talk about that versus low-dose chemo. There's questions about, if you look at some of the immune destruction, the, the, the um, just the suppression with the immune system, it's from that therapy, does it ever come back? And so, I mean, when you look at the CD4 T cells, there's question about whether those even come back. And research shows that some of those CD8 cells, six months, 12 months, they're, they're still trying to recover. So in that, yeah, that in that- T cell exhaustion is a dangerous place to be. Right, but if you take a low dose, yeah. you know, no insulin, but if you take yeah. a low dose and then you give it a little bit more frequently in the confines, yeah. that's not a therapy you continue indefinitely, right? It actually becomes immunomodulatory and yeah. it stimulates the immune system. Oh, yeah. So I think it's the fine line about, okay, this now is destructive of, of which there's no point of, re, no point of return, but if we use it within this confine, it's like Thomas Siffrey talked about the press, press pulse, pulse theory. Totally, yeah. I love it. There, love there it. is a time and a place Absolutely. for everything. Yeah. And you have to be able to look at the data, right, right. the labs, the patient, and recognize when is the time and when is the place. Right. Because you can take a hundred patients with breast cancer yeah. and try to push them the, the, all the same way and it, it, it ain't gonna work. Not a because yeah. it's a yeah. heterogeneous process. And so in Dr. Gatenby, Robert Gatenby's work from Moffitt University, he, in his own, just like, here's, this is what I love about science. Here's a man who was like reading an article or heard an interview with a farmer talking about this moth infestation hmm. that happened in this field. So in the, in, in, I can't remember what year it was, but in Wired magazine, there was a great article, like um, interview with him. And then he's also been on Peter Atia's podcast. So excellent to hear his understanding of this, but he was, you know, oncologist, oncology researcher using maximum tolerated dose, which mm -hmm. is what we do. It's like, well, how do you kill, you know, like the, the highest amount a patient can tolerate before they die and then hope they come back from that. That is literally, that is, ma it's that's, a thing. It's called MTD, maximum tolerated that's, dose. That's, that's that what is, is what we base our research on. That's what we apply. Once you get through clinical trials, phase three, then you say, this is the maximum tolerated dose. And that's what we put everybody on. At that point, we then talk about homogenize. We're like, we're going to give everybody this and expect that everyone will have the same response again to a heterogeneous process. What this doctor was picked up on was he saw in this field of moths that were like just devastating this crop is that basically the harder you sprayed them, the more robust they would come back 
and the harder Whoa. they would be to kill over and over. Fascinating. So he learned that from the farmers, which they realized if you basically go over to a corner of your crop and you put a little bit of the poison on it, it sends off this, what we would call in medicine, an abscopal effect. Oh, yeah. That basically sends signaling out to the rest of the crop that allows it to defend itself. And instead of going after the moths, they basically are like, we'll do a little bit so that the rest of the crop can, can respond accordingly. So he and others in other universities around the United States have moved into this idea of adaptive theory, adaptive theory of cancer, which is to your point, you take a little bit, a metronomic dose, and you put that into the system and you push it back just enough, like just to kind of bring a little information to the system that sends out all these other signals that say, body, do your job. Yeah. And Dr. Rosenberg, Dr. Yeah. Mark Rosenberg, he does, he has spoken to this so much more eloquently than me. So please go listen to him. But he talked, it's like, this is the place where he explained it in one of Paul Anderson's conferences many years ago, that he's like, you've got the daughter cells, which are the rapid turnover proliferating cancer cells. Then they're the ones that are out there that are, you have a proliferating score, a KI-67 score. When that's elevated, those are patients that respond better to those cytotoxic therapies, yeah. chemo, radiation, surgery, targeted therapies. And recognize the context yeah. of the individual. Exactly. And so it's like, so that you go, okay, let's say that you have those rapid cells. When you do maximum tolerant dose, you do everything you can to wipe out every one of those cells. Yeah. That's then what makes the more aggressive moths that we just talked about. Right. But what happens is if you just come in and you put a little bit into this into the equation, you might pull back, let's say, 50% of those cancer cells. You like kind of build a little bit of a runway and then you back off and you let the body do its thing. And you only intervene with another little sort of sprinkling of the poison just when it gets to a certain volume, certain level. And then you do the same thing and it buys you more time and you then start to switch this into a battle zone, into a uh, ma maintained zone. Like here's now something that people can live long, healthy lives with cancer and not die of it. And here coming all the way back, when you over harvest those daughter cells, when you over treat, overkill with maximum tolerated dose, you inherently wake up what they call the mother cells, which are the stem cells. Mm -hmm. And she's pissed. As I say, if, if, <laughs> if, if yeah. you piss off mama, guess what? Everybody's going to suffer. And this is what happens. So when you see, when you see in standard of care, they do, okay, line one of treatment. Great, great response. You went into remission. Everything's good. And everyone's like, ring the bell. We're on with life. Go back to the life you were before. Yeah. Please don't. Yeah. But then, then the next time, oh, come, it's back. Okay, we're going to do the same thing because it worked last time. We're going to do it again. Guess what? It doesn't work as well. Maybe you get three months of, of progression-free survival, but it's less. And then it comes back again. You do the same thing again, and you only get a couple weeks or maybe no response at all. So what happens is you get less and less sensitized to the treatment as you go on because you've created those more aggressive mutations. You created more aggressive mother stem cells coming up. This is what we do differently in our world. That's right. That's right. hundred percent. And this is where oncology is going. And it's not some made up BS. It's things we've observed from nature, from the agricultural world. It's things we've just intuitively feel, but it's also like push it back just enough to let the body do her job, you know, do its job beautifully.
Yeah, I always say that the best answer to cancer is never get it. Beyond right. that, the best That's answer to cancer point. Yeah. is the immune system. Let the immune system do what it's designed to do. Yeah, yeah. Don't destroy it and think now we'll get cancer. Yeah, now we're good. But what about like if you hear, so again, just a few years ago, everyone said that immune system had nothing to do with cancer. And yet now that we can monetize it, it's the soup, soup of the day, oh, right? And there's so, a hot topic. I know. Well, yeah. But here's what's so interesting. The time we are now applying, so if, if I may, this is a really interesting piece here that um, even at best, immune therapies still work about 20% of the time. And when I say work, that's response, not cure. That, that's, that's a very good point because the implication is the benefit equals cure. Right. And that's not the case big, at all. Big, and so patients then read a headline, you know, their doctor sort of maybe misrepresents the reality of it. So everyone's like, oh, this is going to be my answer. So when these drugs came out on the market, everyone was like applying it to, you know, very specific like to melanoma at a certain kidney can like it started in small areas, but it was a last resort. They were giving these immune therapies after multiple lines of treatments failed the patients. I want to really be specific about why I chose that languaging is because standard of care says that the patients failed the treatment. <laughs> but it's the other way around. The treatment failed the patient. And so when the treatment fails the patient, when they wait, what the, what's happening is we've learned you waited too long. There is no immune system to even even st stimulate with a checkpoint inhibitor. So we've brought it on board way too late. The idea, brilliant, but you brought it on to the game too late. So here's a really good example. A year or so ago, the man who wrote the foreword to our mistletoe book, Dr. Luis Diaz, who was also the man who took, who, who stepped up courageously to take on the role of doing a mistletoe trial at Hopkins while he was still mm -hmm. at Hopkins. He then moved over to Sloan Kettering and he is the head of solid tumor. He made international news not too far ago when he had 18, I think 18 patients went into 100% remission with the checkpoint inhibitor. And everyone's like, it's the checkpoint. Everyone's pointing at the checkpoint inhibitors or what did it. But when you look at the study and when I know him the way I know him and when I ask the questions, the thing they didn't tell about were what, tell me about the patients. So the patients, there's a, an actual, out of MD Anderson, they created a prognostic score that said patients with more than a handful of these prognostic or of these prognostic factors are becoming less or more a candidate for these drugs. So things like if you're over the age of 52, you're going to have a poorer response. If you have a poor ECOG score, so a daily function score of more than zero, you're going to have a poor response. If you have elevated LDH, we talked about that the other yeah, day, yeah. poor response. If you've got anything going on with your liver, poor response. If you've got high neutrophils, poor response. If you have low lymphocytes, poor response. If you have high platelets, poor response. Seven. Well, guess what? Most of our patients have at least three, if not more, yeah. especially when they've been over-treated. So that being separate, that was separate. Dr. Diaz likely didn't know about that um, when he had this group of patients, but this group of patients were all under the age of 50 and they all had Lynch syndrome Interesting. and they are all non, not treated. They had not gone through standard of care. So they were treatment naive with a particular genetic, epigenetic pattern, methylation, DNA repair, which is also because Lynch, by the way, is all about how difficult it is to repair your DNA. Right. So these patients had not already kicked, further kicked the poop out of it with a standard of care. So they were treatment naive. So they still had something to work with. That also means they had an immune system to work with. And they were all, they didn't have, they likely didn't have all those seven prognostic factors. Wow. And so suddenly this drug 
when it's used in the right place at the right time with the right dose duration and the right medium, the right soil, it's a freaking miracle. But what you're, what, what we're even talking about there is heterogeneity. Yeah. We're talking about understanding the proper context of the individual through testing, through physical exam, et cetera, and being able to pro provide the right treatment for the right patient at the right time. Yeah. It's individualized therapy. Absolutely. That, that's what it is. And so one of the things we have to work really hard, I believe, Nisha, is that we have to recognize what we tend to do in medicine, which is hold fast to that one hit hypothesis, yeah, magic right. bullet theory. There was, there was a little bit of a debate that, that occurred talking about uh, <laughs> metabolic flexibility. And so I wanted to highlight yeah, big one. A, a quote here that was, there was um, the differentiation between mitochondrial, uh, no, actually that wasn't it. Um, yeah, that there was a statement made that dysbiosis, so imbalanced gut bacteria, contributes to mitochondrial dysfunction, subsequently elevating glycolysis. So it was really just saying, hey, we're going to reimagine the one-hit hypothesis, but do it from a kind of natural alternative perspective. Green allopathy. That, yeah. <laughs> Beautiful. It, did you just make that up? No, it's, it's a coin term out there. It's okay. been out there for a long time. Haven't heard that one. <laughs> so, um, but, but then there was somebody that said, no, what we're really dealing with is cancer cells reprogramming and adapting mitochondrial function. Yeah. And there's actually research that shows that in cancer cells, there are functioning mitochondria. Yeah, so this, exactly. This concept, so, so this debate broke out a little bit about this inflexibility, but from a natural alternative perspective versus no, what we're really dealing with is flexibility, heterogeneity. Yeah. And, and yeah. so hats off um, to um, Ahmed. Yeah. How do you pronounce his name? Dr. Ahmed, Ahmed Osaka. Yeah, Osaka. Yep. Now he's in Egypt, but he really, I think so eloquently talked about the adaptability, the flexibility, the plasticity, yes, yes. the reprogramming yes that cancer is really doing yeah. versus you know, the debate that it's one, one, one process. Yeah. And I think it ties into this concept of cancer as a heterogeneous yeah. disease. And an opportunistic one. Oh. And so if you take away its opportunistic nature, if you make the environment inhospitable to it doing its thing, it can live with you and in you indefinitely and not cause problems and that's what is so different is that people will keep looking at an image or at a, a, a tumor account and be like it's still there we've got to completely eradicate well maybe that maybe those are just showing us that it's still there but when you look at everything that's wrapped around it how how is that communication going how is there's, that um, support happening there's a process called immunoediting yeah probably aware of that where you can have elimination equilibrium yes. and escape. It's oh, where wow, wow. by you have the tumor and you have the immune system. Yeah. And clearly one of the key aspects of how cancer spreads is immune escape. Yeah, that's and that's where the full dose chemo can really contribute to the metastatic process. Yeah. But if you can achieve equilibrium mm -hmm. yeah. where the immune system is keeping the cancer in check and you're there for three, four or five decades, yeah. that's a success story. Uh, beyond. 
But that's, I mean, that's total kind of, But that's kind of Nathan. your story, too. Exactly. And so what happened is you moved. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, okay. I'm just an anecdote, and thousands of my patients are just an anecdote, but, and no one seems to care about an anecdote, uh, by the I way. I encourage you to check out the podcast that just dropped with Paul yeah. Merrick and Pierre Corey, because Pierre Corey just said, it's an antidote, but it's nonetheless reality. Exactly. When are we going to just quit throwing antidotes yeah. aside and go, wow, look at that. What about that? Do we need to explore further? Yeah. You're, you're the antidote that was diagnosed with at ni age 19. And like I told the other day, you're 29, actually. <laughs> yeah. She dated herself call, talking about microfish in the library. <laughs> I did true, not do, true. I did I not do that. There. <laughs> uh, it's like, that's you. That's on you. That's on you. But um, so then what you did is you helped achieve equilibrium yeah. where your immune system was in balance with the cancer. Great place to be. Yeah. But then what you could do and what you did is you basically started to slowly tilt yeah. the imbalance, yeah. the immune system. And now you Into started to lead yeah. to yeah. elimination, yeah. which is you just told me your your CA125 marker was the, the normal for the first time in 32 years. And that and what number was it? Uh, 18. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it, 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 it like before that, it, it was... How uh, high was it when you were first? When I was first diagnosed, it was over 15,000. It took about six years to get it under 10,000. It took another 10 years until 2009 to get it into the hundreds. And that we talked about that. That was on dealing with some dental stuff. And then it's just been a slow adjustment. And then a little TMI. But I'm, I want people to understand this when I finally moved through menopause, which always freaks people out because they're like, wait a minute, ovarian cancer, shouldn't she not? Because people assume mm -hmm. that I won't have my bits and whatnot. And so, no, I just moved through that. And that was another, like my body said, just hang on. We've got a life rash coming for you. You're almost there. Because that turned off another area that was contributing to my terrain. It's like, especially those last few bumpy years of making the transition in perimenopause, the, between stress and, you know, uh, you know, diet lifestyle, traveling so much, exposures to mold, all the things bumping into the perimenopause. It was really hard to keep maneuvering around and trying to maintain that homeostasis. And so I just took one other com complicating factor out of the equation in this last year to move across the threshold of menopause which has given me a leg up that I feel like this year is about reestablishing homeostasis in a new field because I don't have that same um, signaling. But it was amazing to see that I went from almost 100 on my C125 to 18 just by crossing over the menopause threshold. So very you're, you're presenting a different concept, and this is also heterogeneous as well, that the way we approach uh, cancer conventionally is go to war. It is, you know, try to achieve uh, no evidence of disease as fast as we can, unleash hell, all side effects be damned, forgive the language, but you've taken a very different approach and it's one I think we need to take note of because you have many patients that have followed the same approach. Absolutely. You've lived as you've healed. Yeah. You have over um, just at least a few decades, Yeah. you have slowly engaged in this plasticity, this right. metabolic flexibility, understanding that you can have time yeah. and adapt in the cancer treatment and then build momentum with a snowball that yeah, rolls yeah, down yeah, a hill yeah, yeah. so that now here a few decades later, you're healing 
you're on your way to healed and yet you are not just living right right you are changing the trajectory of a practice of medicine through history right. that that is a perfect example yeah. of heterogeneous but it's not in the confines within cancer, it's evident everything. in the antidote yeah. of your life that is yeah. everything. Yeah. So you don't have to rush to yeah. the treatment. It's like buyer's remorse, right? Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Yep. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because you just said something. So I think about now, um, you know, in full transparency, the last couple of years have been very stressful um, for all of us, really. I mean, really, the last few years, everything's changed, yeah. but just big picture, this has probably been one of the biggest cauldrons of stress I've been in, like, continuously over a couple year period of time. So there are things I need to do to adjust and support my terrain further, which is I'm doing it and I'm doing the best I can like all of us. But I will say big picture, I am definitely, I was definitely healthier in my thirties than I was in my teens and twenties. By the time I reached my forties, I was way healthier than I was in my um, teens, twenties, thirties. Now into my fifties, despite these last kind of bumpy years, um, I'm looking at my life and my peers, my colleagues, my friends, my family members that are in the same age range as I am. I spent so many decades working on my terrain that I don't see and get the same types of things. I, I'm on no medications. Well, I do take some low dose naltrexone, but that's a whole nother you know, thing there. But that's it. I'm watching all the friends of my t age range falling apart like just falling apart and on multiple medications and multiple diagnoses and yeah, their warranty ran out. Their warranties run out. Their little mitochondria is like enough already. Yeah. So in some ways I was so lucky to get an early start on this process that starts in your youth. You have to start this journey because to your point, the only cure for cancer is prevention. That's right. And then once it takes root, the, the, the necessity, the requirement to do all the things to create that homeostasis that you talked about is what's required. If you are, I'm sorry, I'm going to be a little harsher. If you are delusional enough to think that a standard of care therapy alone is going to be enough, that an alternative approach is going to be enough, that just a quick one change in your diet is going to be enough, or just praying it away or meditating it away or yoga-ing it away or juicing it away is going to be enough. You're delusional. And I don't mean that rudely. I need you to wake up and realize everything. And we were talking this morning about the hardest part of my practice is when I see people who know what their obstacle to cure is. Oh, yeah. We we're talking about it from a different concept, relationships. Exactly, which is huge. Yeah. And so when the people closest to you are not in resonance with who you are, help you be a better, healthier version of yourself, and you do the same for them in a reciprocal, loving, safe environment, trusting environment, your cells are getting that message too. Yeah. And so we were talking about there's so many folks I've had that would stay in the field of that toxicity and then wonder why their cancer isn't going away. It's like, they're like, I do all the things. I do the diet. I did my metronomic chemo. I, I did uh, the supplements. I did X, Y, and Z. And why is it not getting better? Well, that's exactly when we've done all the things. That's when we look at the mind-body. That's when we look at the spiritual. That's when we look at the relational. That's when we look at that piece. That's the hardest piece and often the most important. And I wish everyone started there. But we're humans. And we want to do the tangible first. And so that piece plays a role in this as well. And that's definitely an area that standard of care doesn't talk about. 
So one thing doesn't cause cancer, nor can one thing Except treat yeah. cancer. And cancer is a heterogeneous process. Cancer in one person is a heterogeneous process. They look at the tum in one tumor. That's right. Is they look at, everybody looks at the tumor and tumor microenvironment and they say the whole area is hypoxic. No, yeah. Yeah. it's hypoxic and there's normoxic areas. It, it is a, we are understanding the flexibility, the adaptability, the heterogeneity of this, but we've actually, we, we didn't dive into like the reverse uh, Otto Warburg or Crabtree effect. We didn't get into all these other areas and we probably would have lost you there, but I think you, you eloquently have helped us to describe the entire heterogeneity process that is cancer. And it has to also bring to the forefront the heterogeneous aspect of the thinking of cancer. Yeah. We must continue work to innovate, to elevate. And I love what you're doing with the Metabolic Terrain Health Institute because we must put the information out there for debate and discourse. Absolutely. We must challenge what we think. Yeah. We must challenge what each other thinks because out of that, that's where you get innovation and elevation of thought, and that is a perfect example of the heterogeneity that we need in this process. So where is the Metabolic Terrain Health Institute yeah. going yeah. in the future? Because yeah. it's, it's as an institution, it's fairly young, correct? Yeah. How? Well, in one way, this I started dreaming about this early on in my diagnosis of a place. I started having I guess visions mm -hmm. about a place where people could go and have everything under one roof, a deep dive assessment of what brought that person to their knees, what mm -hmm. brought that person to meet a diagnosis of cancer. Now our patients have to piecemeal all of it together. Mm -hmm. You know, if you just want to do standard care and stay in your own little environment, you can do that, but it's not going to be enough for most people. Right. Over 70% will have a recurrence. And so being aware of that is very important to know, I have to do more than just this one thing. So, but to do that now you've got to go all over the place. Right. So having one place. The other thing is I'm so data driven that I want all the information. So we are, we're building a data platform to collect the data. When people say there is no data, um, there is, it's just not collected in a meaningful way and translated in a meaningful way. And that's what we're building. We are building a lab from everything from R and D like uh, development of, of novel delivery systems and novel products. Uh, that are less toxic, but are just, you know, coming from off-label drugs or things or metronomic things that can be repurposed in a way that we can harness their power with the less toxicity right. to the healthy cells and more toxicity to the cancer cells. We are building that. We're building a cell line study lab. We're building a what's known a seahorse mitochondrial respiration lab and a PCR. So the genomics, the, the polyomics we talked about lab to look at all of that. That's happening in Phoenix we have what we call our virtual campuses, which is the education platform of, at this point, well over 200 clinicians in 36 countries, 300 advocates in 36 countries. We have a new cohort starting in February for the docs. We do it twice a year. We have a cohort starting in April for the, for the advocates. That's also offered twice a year. We're building this mycelium net. So we're creating this cohesive language narrative to help people get get a methodology that's similar because we want the autonomy we right. want people to still do their thing but there's a method you can use that is um global that's right. and very effective to show you are we doing what we think we're doing 
You know, is the patient responding the way we think they're responding? So we're building the education, we're building the data platform, we're building the research institute. We've got the clinicians offering these care all over, but eventually we'll have the campus, which is in Southeast Arizona on a 1200 acre organic regenerative farm um, with a 250,000 square foot, 150 bed residential, you know, hospital and research institute that we hope is a training ground for clinicians from all over the world, plus them coming in. Our training is so much like a mastermind of bringing the best of the best brains in all aspects of this, from MDs, NDs, PAs, DOs, psychiatrists, biological dentists, even veterinary medicine yeah. um, has, has come through our training program and beyond, that we know we are creating a ripple out there. And it is all about the focus on the individual and what their input is to their terrain and how it's being interpreted and expressed in their body, which guides us to know exactly what dose duration combination, you know, is warranted for that person in that get in that time. And so we are not going and fixing the system because it's not interested in repairing. It just right. isn't. No. So we're going to build a new one. You and go. you and hundreds of others are already well into that mission. And we know that in the next couple of years, there'll be thousands. And then it will become that hundredth monkey that becomes millions. And this, what we're talking about, already is standard of care. That's right. You know, that's the future. That's hope. And what you're displaying there and what you're discussing is, again, that, that concept of heterogeneity. But it's not becoming stagnant and thought. It's your, your history and your repetitive nature of not being satisf satisfied but continuing to learn and to act, but then also working with others. Yeah. It's, as Steve mentioned when we first came in, Stephen was talking about community. Yeah. That's what you're building is community. There's heterogeneity within yes, the community. And within that, we can bring together new innovation, new elevations and advanced therapy. Yes. So, you know, you presented a future. And as I tell you, Hope is confidence in a tomorrow, in a future. This is why you are the great nation winners, because you do great things. You act. You don't satisfy with what you've done. And those points of action are much more than just new ideas. You're building. And if you're a doctor or as, if you're as a patient, or if you're as a practitioner, a nutritionist, a veterinarian, yeah. a pharmacist, yeah. this is a collection of individuals, different individuals from around the world, different backgrounds, different thinking, mm. heterogeneity. Mm. But with that, we're gonna bring new ideas. And NASHA is leading the way there, I believe in a way that is helping to set that new system. So Dr. NASHA Winters, thank you for being such a gracious host and opening up your life, your weekend to us, your beautiful beach, and your wonderful husband. As you yeah. said, you said I would love Stephen, and I do. I know. He's it's, awesome. You know, He's it's... awesome. We've had several <laughs> geek uh, conversations <laughs> about biochemistries and stuff. It's uh, lots of fun, a lot of it around medical cannabis and stuff like that. But I hope what you garner from this, this weekend with the great nation winners, mm -hmm. is that there's a tomorrow, there's a future, and there's a hope in it. And that's what hope is. 
So thank you for joining this podcast series. I encourage you to like it, give us a five-star review, share this with everybody that you would think would benefit this. It could be that there are people that have their fur babies that have cancer. Share it, share it because this same concept applies there. You may be an individual affected by cancer. Your family may be affected by cancer. There is no family in the world that's not impacted by cancer. So thank you for being here. Share this, like it, follow us on social media, wherever you go on social media to socialize, we're there, such as Dr.Goodyear Instagram, you'll find us everywhere, but also drgoodyear.com, that's our personal brand website, where you will find the podcast, but you can download the podcast anywhere as they're doing construction. But then that's our, that's our cue, that's our cue. No, 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 that's our cue. But then also you can find me at brio-medical.com. And uh, Dr. Nasha Winters, where can they find you? Please come look for me at either drnasha.com, D-R-N-A-S-H-A.com, or mtih.org, which stands for Metabolic Terrain Institute of Health.org. They also cross-pollinate with one another, but it shows all the things that we're doing. It shows all the podcasts and interviews and things that we're on. Um, just launched our own podcast. I was say, you, you have your own, you have your own pod. Yeah. So what's, is that on it's, one of those websites? It, it's, it's its own little zone, but you'll see the links on the, okay. both those sites, but it's called metabolicmatters.org. Okay. Ooh, I like that. Org. I like yeah. that. And I've seen the emails. Yeah. 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 And so one of these days he'll be my guest, I hope. Yeah. So, um, but it's, it's really, this is just it. It's like, these are in that, that's a play on words because metabolic does matter. Yeah. And it's about the matters of metabolic and all the different things. So, so it's really great because it expands on all the things you and I have gotten to share with each other and everybody else today. But um, thank you for the opportunity to be with you. Thank you for your wisdom and your uh, desire to amplify this important message into the world. And thank you for being part of this movement. Uh, you know, because I look at we're all linking arms. There is no competition. Absolutely no. It is like, how do we do better together? I look at it as we're a team. Yeah. And it's only when we work together, as we said yesterday, we're not short on patience at all. I wish we were. I wish we were. Yeah. <laughs> but it's yeah. it's only by working together, putting to, putting aside pride, putting aside ego, and working together, that is the only way we innovate. That's the only way we elevate. And that's the only way we empower you as patients, you as physicians, to guess what? Provide hope, heal teach, serve, speak on truth, build trust with patients, and build a legacy that is healing, both with the patient at the cellular level, but also with doctors to build that new system that builds a legacy that changes how we approach cancer. One that doesn't go to war, but one that heals. That's hope, and remember, hope it forward. Dr. Goodyear of the Practicing with Dr. Nathan Goodyear podcast, Thank you for joining us in the beautiful south of the border, Mexico.